here. I, uh, I have known, known people in Zion for a long time. A funny thing happened to me uh, earlier this year. Now, I was preaching up in, at Grace Presbyterian Church in Cookville. And I looked out, and there sat my old friend Don Wallman with all his family. And I just was so shocked. I stopped in the middle of the sermon and went, Don? And he said, hey, Bing. And it turns out, y'all may know this, they take, I guess, a spring trip every year and go up to Fall Creek Falls State Park. And the kids and their spouses and, you know, all that get together. And I was just so floored because I'm so used to seeing Don here. You know what I mean? And to see him in Cookville, I was kind of like, am I dreaming? Or is that really Don Wallman? So it was. And I love Don. He's a good man. Um, this book is obviously one of the shortest uh, books in the Bible. Uh, it is shorter than Jude by some nine verses, so I believe that it is the shortest, although I have to tell you I didn't look that up, and I should have. This is John the Apostle writing. This is John, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is John who probably lived longer than all of the other uh, apostles. He seems to have finished his life, John did, uh, in Ephesus, uh, which was very near. It was the, the town on the coast of Asia Minor that was closest to the Isle of Patmos, where John was exiled for a number of years and where he wrote the book of Revelation. And then he went back to live there uh, in Ephesus, it seems. Now, this is not a biblical knowledge that we have about where John finished his life. It's more of a historical knowledge, so it's not to be treated as Scripture, but there does seem to be very strong history that says that he... Uh, finished his life in in, uh, in in Ephesus. And we have historical records that say that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was buried in Ephesus, which is not surprising uh, considering that uh, Jesus on the cross had given Mary to John to be son and mother, that he might take care of her. And so clearly, uh, clearly he did. Uh, he starts off with a pretty common address John does to this uh, to this uh, uh, epistle in that uh, he, he starts off by giving who's writing and who's receiving. And it's very simple. He says, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. That's it. But that's the standard that we see in letters there. The sender names himself and the recipient is named. And then a salutation such as whom I love in truth uh, is given uh, so that uh, that, uh, that person uh, might be recognized and might understand that the letter is addressed to him, but it's to be read to all the other letters. We call uh, other churches, we call this a general epistle to the churches in Asia Minor. And this means that John wrote the epistle to a specific church uh, as specific names are mentioned, but we are never told to which church he's writing. The content of the letter is specific, but can also be applied to churches everywhere. Okay, so John did this under the uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, very artfully. Um, it was can be applied to churches everywhere, which is why it became a general epistle and was circulated to all the churches in Asia Minor. And indeed, the Holy Spirit saw fit to include this letter uh, in our canon so that we have it speaking to us uh, today. Um, since this letter, now this is an interesting twist. Since this letter was copied and was delivered to all the churches as an authoritative word, it means that John and the recipients of the letter were at least somewhat aware, somewhat aware, that what he was writing was on a level with Scripture. Now, what an incredible thought. 
John says in an earlier epistle uh, that uh, in John in Second uh, John uh, that uh, we that they are to obey the, all the scriptures. They are to obey all the writings of their brother Paul as they would the other scriptures. So he's already declared to his readers that Paul is writing scripture. And he seems to have, in sending these letters out as an authoritative word, he and the recipients seem to understand that he, too, is probably writing on a level of Scripture, which is just an incredible thought, you know, as a man is, is sitting there writing. Let's quickly review what we know about John. Like I said, he was the famed disciple Jesus loved. He was given the care of Mary uh, by Jesus when he was on the cross. As far as we know, he lived longer than any of the other twelve. He was imprisoned on Patmos. Uh, which was off the coast of Ephesus, which was then on the southwest coast of Asia Minor. Now, I say it was on the coast because over the centuries, indeed millennia, the river has silted in, and now Ephesus is several miles inland. Uh, In fact, there's a big airport there now uh, in in Turkey. Uh, If you want to fly there, you can pretty much fly pretty close to Ephesus, just just right there. So, But it's inland. The river silted in, the beaches uh, closed in, and so Ephesus is several miles inland now, and not on the coast as it used to be. Uh, back in the time of uh, John and Paul. Uh, Many believe on good authority that John lived to be an incredible age at that time of almost 100, meaning that he probably wrote this letter in 90 to 95 A.D. before he was sent to Patmos. Uh, In these letters, John addresses himself only as the elder. Uh, And that's an interesting way of putting it. I strongly believe, after reading the books over and over and after reading commentaries, I strongly believe that this was John acting in the humility that we know he was filled with, as well as placing himself as a yoke fellow to the elders and deacons of the churches in Asia Minor, in other words, as one of them, uh, and not someone special, although he certainly was that. John had probably every right historically, uh, spiritually, and everything else to, to give dictates Uh, to the churches in Asia Minor, but he didn't. He designated himself as the elder, which meant he was just one with them. He was a yoke fellow with them, uh, and that he was doing his teaching uh, from that viewpoint. John seems to have been the elder over all the churches uh, in uh, uh, in Asia Minor. Um, And understand that when we say the churches in Asia Minor, let's say say the town of Laodicea, okay? Um, there's not one church in Laodicea that he's writing to. He writes to the church in Laodicea, but that could be a number of smaller gatherings that meet in homes throughout Laodicea. Do you see what I'm saying? So there would, now they would come together from time to time. They had officers and things like that in common, but there might be several meeting places in Laodicea. So when he writes to the church in Laodicea, for instance, he's writing to all the Christians in Laodicea in the many gatherings in which they meet for worship. Okay, so that when he so he is the senior guy, he's the elder uh, to all these churches. The third John is written in a very straightforward way, taking on about four different subjects in quick succession and giving them each a section in the letter. Now, since John names specific names in the letter, I think we can assume that there was good communication and commerce between the churches in Asia Minor and that many people probably went to various churches in other towns as they traveled to market or on other businesses. In other words, a believer from one town may be in town on business with another. He's going to look up local believers and go to church. So there was commerce between the churches. There was conversation. They knew one another. Uh, uh, even across an area that's as large and sometimes as mountainous uh, as Asia Minor is, they stayed well connected. 
course, that's one of the things we Presbyterians hold dear, is that churches remain connected to one another, that we're not just sole outposts, uh, which is why I've been down to Zion uh, many times for meetings. I've been down to Zion many times just to visit at one time Arch and now Paul uh, and so forth and so on. We, we are connected together, and these churches in Asia Minor really were. I won't get to address all of the sections of 3 John in depth, but I want to point them out to you real quickly, if I can, if you want to write them down. Um, <clears throat> verses 1 through 4 uh, constitute a salutation to Gaius and uh, an, an admonition about walking in truth. Verses 5 through 8 are about caring for and being a truth worker. Now, that's one of the ones we are going to talk about. Verses 9 and 10... He talks about petty diatrophies, the one who wants to rule the church and blah, 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 all this stuff. In verses 11 and 12, he gives an immediate uh, 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 counterpoint to diatrophies in talking about gospel imitator Demetrius. And finally, in verses 13 and 5 through 15, he gives his closing greeting. So you can see about five sectors in here, about five sections in here addressing four really important things. This is one of those little power-packed letters. I mean, I think we could study Third John for a long time. I, I think we could probably do, I think somebody as talented as Paul or Chad or somebody like that could probably do, gosh, four or five or six sermons out of this book. And here I'm going to do some of it all at once. I don't know what that says about me. But anyway, um, John starts the letter in a familiar form, if I said. And you'll notice in the first four verses that John uses the term truth four different times. And two of those times are inside the phrase, in the truth. He praises Gaius for continuing to walk in the truth and urges all to do the same. To John, it becomes obvious in these three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, that, quote, walking in the truth, end quote, means evidencing that you belong to Jesus by the way you live your life in all arenas. He would ask us something like this. Do you live every day so that it is obvious that you belong to Jesus? And I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, that's a high, high, very high standard. And I'm not sure that I could answer yes to that on, on all the days of my life. In fact, I know I couldn't. Uh, and I don't say that with anything other than someone, as anything other than someone who needs to repent of that. And through that repentance, ask for and seek the strength by the Holy Spirit to live like that on a daily basis. He asks us, do you live every day so that it is obvious that you belong to Jesus. Not that you're out there being anything works-oriented or something like that, but that you belong to Jesus, that Jesus lives in you and you dwell in him. John closes this first section by saying how he rejoices when he hears his children, the people in the churches of Asia Minor, are walking in the truth. It's a, it's a great thought to keep in mind as long as we don't turn it into a works orientation. He speaks later, later of imitating the gospel and imitating Christ. And one of the great uh, devotionals uh, over time uh, is uh, the imitation of Christ by uh, Thomas Akempis. Uh, and one of the things that we find there and we find in imitating Christ, he's not talking about a rote imitation of Christ by just trying to do the things Christ did and thereby saying, well, if I do what Jesus does, I, I've asked any number of people, probably hundreds or thousands of people by now, um, <clears throat> how are you saved? You say you're saved, why are you saved? What does that consist of? And you'd be surprised at how many people say, well, I, I try to do what Jesus would do in any situation. 
And I will always say, and that saves you? And they'll say, well, I hope so. (laughs) But that's not the content of our salvation, is it? The content of our salvation is not that we go and try to do what Jesus did. The content of our salvation is that Jesus went and did it all and gave us the benefit of it for free. And we access that and attain it and become one with him by faith alone. But still in all, John encourages us to be imitators of the gospel, imitators of Christ, and imitators of other believers that we see and admire. Not in rote imitation, but in saying, how did they get there? Where did they get there? I need to go to the Word. I need to go to prayer. I need to ask the Holy Spirit to guide me so that I might be an imitator of the truth, so that day by day people might know that I belong to Jesus. It's very easy to turn this into a works orientation. It's like the hokey pokey. The Christian hokey-pokey, if you put your left foot in, take your left foot out, all that. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is walking in true imitation of Christ, in reliance on the Father, in uh, uh, daily and even more than daily prayer, uh, and so forth and so on, repenting and asking the Holy Spirit to give us strength to move on. That, that is the imitation of Christ. That's the walking in the truth uh, that John commends to us so many times in these three little books. In verses 5 through 8, John addresses caring for and being a truth worker. But I want to come back to that. The sections in this letter are obviously held together by being in one letter. But John really does address separate items so that we can take them out and look at them a little independently. Context is king. We always say that when we preach the scripture. And context is king here. But John has also made this into blocks of truth, if you will, that we need to see. So let's move on to verses 9 through 15, the last half of the chapter. In those verses, John addresses two different men by name and holds them up as examples, one a very negative example and one a very positive example. Now, I believe that John does this for two reasons. Number one, he's writing to a specific church in a specific area, and he's encouraging them essentially to get away from one man and look to the other. You know, leave Diotrephes behind, look to uh, Demetrius. He's also sending it as a general epistle because most people, as I said, these churches probably had commerce with each other, people traveling back and forth. They would know of Diotrephes. They would know of uh, Demetrius in many, if not all, of the churches. And so the point would be made that he's trying to make to all the churches. It's not just to one church. And this letter speaks clearly to us uh, over the millennia since then. Uh, about what he's talking about. And, and what he's talking about when he mentions uh, a Diotrephes is obviously a man who has become a little tyrant in his particular church. Neither John nor the rest of Scripture hold much love for tyrants in the, in the, in the family of God. There's just no place for them. God himself is not a tyrant. He's loving and gracious and merciful uh, and, and and so many things we, we can't name. He's the paragon of them all. He's the perfection of them all. And he does not tolerate tyrants because they do not do their jobs or do go about their ways with love. Listen to what he says in verses 9 and 10. John says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come... I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. The brothers are a traveling band of uh, evangelists and church uh, 
churchmen that, that go around Asia Minor. I'll explain those more in just a minute. But Diotrephes not only will not have those in his church, he will not let people who care for those men like they're supposed to come to the church. Diotrephes is just a petty tyrant. He's what we would call a very small man uh, in that he has to exercise absolute authority. And I love the way John puts it, uh, who likes to put himself first. Diotrephes apparently felt that the church was the perfect uh, milieu in which he could put himself first. And of course the church is the milieu where we only uh, put Christ first, where we only put God Uh, The Trinity first. Uh, Our Trinitarian God who loved us and called us to be his own. And yet Diotrephes wants to put himself first. He even speaks ill of John to others. Can you imagine? John, this storied man. John whom everyone had heard. uh, What Jesus said on the cross to John and to Mary. I mean, he knew, everyone had heard, knew that John was the disciple that Jesus loved. Can you imagine having that title? He loves all of us. Uh, but for John, it was, he was the disciple Jesus loved. And they knew this, and Diotrephes decides he wants to speak ill of John. That shows a man that's not only a tyrant, but not a very smart one at that. Um, also, when others seek to do what John instructs, he keeps them from doing it. Uh, John finally decides, and I think he seems a little hesitant here, he finally decides... Uh, to write no more specifics about Diotrephes after two verses, knowing that the letter will probably not even make it to the church because Diotrephes won't let it. Diotrephes won't let it be read in the church. And so John stops after two verses, not wanting to carry on, uh, and rather ominously says that he will deal with it when he visits the church. Uh, I remember my mother saying to me, wait until your father gets home. (laughs) And he hears this. How many of you heard that a lot? I did. Uh, and uh, I, that's kind of like what this is about, although not quite, man, I don't know if it's more ominous or not, but when she said that to me, it used to strike fear into my heart, and uh, I hope that it struck fear into Diotrephes' heart, and I hope that Diotrephes eventually repented of his ways and became a true and genuine repenting follower of Christ, but we don't know that. Uh, we can hope that, but we don't know it because he's not mentioned again uh, in the Scriptures. Now then John moves on after Diotrephes to imitating good. Uh, He's not suggesting, like I said, that we simply act like we're doing good things. He's giving us this as a rule of life. Look around. Find godly men and women whom you trust and love and learn the Christian life by watching what they do. Uh, It's that simple. This is what we hope for our children and our grandchildren. This is what we hope for new believers in the church. And if it's good for all of them, it's good for us too. We need to be lifelong learners, learning to imitate the truth, looking to those godly people among us. Uh, I am uh, in presbytery. We have a a sort of formal term of address that we don't use quite often anymore, but we use it some. When someone... Young, like Chad, would stand up to speak in Presbytery. Sorry, Chad, you're not that young. But according to the Presbytery <laughs> age uh, uh, scale you are, uh, Chad might stand up and very politely address the Presbytery as fathers and brothers, meaning fathers in the faith and brothers those who are, are more my, my age and my uh, level and, uh, and of experience. And uh, I'm definitely, as you can probably tell from the gray, I've definitely reached the point of being one of the fathers in the, uh, uh, in the presbytery. In fact, that was announced at one of my birthdays that took place at the same time presbytery did. And 
Reverend Charles McGowan, who I'm sure you all know, or some of you do, stood up and said, uh, let's sing happy birthday to Bing, but let's also remind him that at this age, he's become one of the fathers in the Presbyterian, not one of the brothers. And I was like, oh, God. But the point is that even as a father in the Presbytery, uh, I find myself wanting to look to young men like Chad, to Paul, and to others, because they teach me so much. When I'm going, uh, when we are uh, with MTW, our one-up, our supervisor, is a young man that's 16 years younger than I am. But he's been on the mission field 12 years. So that's 12 years more than me. And so I have plenty to learn from him. And he said, well, i got plenty to learn from you. And I said, well, we'll see about that. But I've got a lot to learn from you about being a missionary and so forth. I look up to this young man, even though he's 16 years younger than I am. Uh, and so we do that. That's the learning process by which we learn to imitate the truth. We see other godly men and women. And we seek to behave and to act as they do, not just by rote, but by searching the scriptures or even asking and talking to them and saying, what drives you to do this? What drives you to do that? Why do you? And let them tell us. And that way we learn from the scriptures. We learn repentance. We learn the walking day to day in union with Christ. And so John encourages this. To this. He encourages us to imitate good, not simply in rote fashion, uh, but as something that has burrowed into our hearts uh, through the gospel uh, and is leading us uh, to imitate others as we learn from them and their godly lifestyles. And, and John's clearly saying here, don't look at Diotrephes, look at Demetrius. Demetrius, uh, he says, um, he starts off by saying, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. This goes back to the very first chapters of first John, the first chapter of 1 John, referencing back there. And then he says, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself, meaning that he walks scripturally. We also add our testimony, and you know our testimony is true. Yet another instance that John understands that he's got a very authoritative position, but is not willing to wield it like a baseball bat, but more like an, an, a, 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 a mint glove in encouraging people, you know, very softly. Now let's quickly go back to the second section in this letter, verses 5 through 8. Now these verses make up over 25% of the letter, of the content of the letter. So obviously John thought this was important. Let me read verses 5 to 8 to you. He says, Beloved... It is a faithful thing. He's changed voices here. He's not just addressing Gaius. Now he's addressing uh, all the churches. He says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Very important passage here. A passage that doesn't stand alone in the Old Testament, but or in the New Testament, but is unique in the direct way that John speaks about these brothers. And first let me tell you who the brothers were. It appears that there was in John and also in Peter, I believe, that there was a band, uh, apparently, of roving evangelists or elders... Uh, or church helpers, probably a group of elders and deacons uh, and some that were fit to preach, apt to preach, that went around Asia Minor on an uncertain... They, didn't, they weren't always like the second Tuesday in, at, at you know, Laodicea. And then, 
But they would roam, and they would stop, and they would seek to do several things. First, they would seek to evangelize and build new churches, plant new churches. Second, they would go and build up the churches that already existed. And third, they would carry news from church to church, okay? And in this way, they would always circle back through Ephesus and see John. And in this way, John knew what was going on with the churches and was able to give instruction, send these letters out, do things. And these men were trained, probably by John, uh, to go and help these churches in this way. So they were traveling evangelists. And clearly, when John says they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting, accepting nothing from the Gentiles, clearly John is referring to the time that he and the rest of the twelve, and then later the seventy-two, were sent throughout Israel to proclaim the gospel, not taking anything with them, no money in their bags, not an extra tunic, anything like that, as it says, not taking anything with them, depending on the gifts of believers along the way for survival. John, along with others, clearly had uh, this, had clearly imitated this itinerant ministry in the church in Asia Minor, growing the church and connecting the churches to one another in the process. So these guys were missionaries, church planners, elders, deacons, leaders, all at one time. And that's why when he refers to Diotrephes, he says Diotrephes refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to welcome them and puts them out of the church. So it's a command to the church that when these brothers come through, that they support them, just like the 12 and the 72 did when they went throughout Israel. They didn't. They stayed only with people who would receive the word. And if they came to a town that didn't receive the word, they were to leave that town and shake the dust off their sandals uh, against that town. And so John clearly has set up a system like this, where there are these missionaries, church planners, whatever you want to call it, all of these people that were traveling around Asia Minor, planting new churches, encouraging existing churches, and things like that. An incredible ministry if you look at it between, if you read it between the lines of several books in the New Testament. This is such an important ministry for the people to support personally that it even becomes a charge against Diotrephes, that he will not participate in this ministry and prevents others from doing so. Now, I didn't come here to talk about me being a missionary. Chad introduced me as a missionary. That's great. But as a missionary, it's not surprising that I like this passage. It's not surprising that I like it. I love the place where John says, therefore we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. But you know what I really love? I really love being invited to preach in a church that has so effectively carried out this mandate over the years. I do not kid with you nor try to unnecessarily flatter you. It is a given that when you speak to other churches in this area and other areas as well in the South, Zion Presbyterian Church is known as a church with a huge heart for missions, a church that puts its heart, time, and money where the Scripture directs us in the Great Commission. You just do. I I look down this list of of missionaries, and I see so many that I know, and and I see so many that do such great works. Uh, Carol Arnold, I've known forever. Jack was one of my professors. On down to the Tafts, I was with Sam Taft the other day as we were examining him for ordination, which he had to put off when his brother died about ten weeks ago. Uh, and so many others that I know, obviously, obviously Kevin and Wendy to, uh, to wit, and obviously Andy and Bev Warren. Andy having done just, uh, God has worked amazing things through Andy Warren uh, in, uh, in Ethiopia. And it's just an incredible, 
a ministry that you all have. You are known uh, as a giving church. You are known as a church that walks uh, in this way. When we look at uh, the Great Commission, uh, it tells us to go. And Zion Presbyterian Church is known and celebrated as a church that sends and goes. And I wanted you to know that. I saved this passage for last because I wanted to commend you on that. And because I'm glad to be able to be here with you. Um, I commend you for your heart and for your reputation. I don't see nor have I heard of any diatrophies here. Only people that are wholehearted about missions and wholehearted about their word and their gospel and their people here in the church and outside the church. This little letter teaches us above all that we are to walk in truth, live that truth, and teach that truth in any way possible to all we come in contact with. Let me say it again. This letter teaches us above all that we are to walk in the truth, that we're to live that same truth, and that we are to teach that truth in any way possible to all that we come in contact with, whether that is the proclamation of the word uh, like this, whether that is sending missionaries as you do, whether that is just living your life in a way that shows uh, without pride that you know Jesus and that you're united with him. This is the point of that letter, which is why he gave the idea of walking in the truth right at the first and then supporting people who spread the truth to the second place. You, when we write to one of our kids, well, we, now it's texting. But it used to be people write letters, and I know some of you in here remember that. And when you wrote a letter to your child at college or something like that, you wanted to put the first things first. And the first things where I love you and I hope you're doing well and all that. And then you got to the point where I hope you hope you go to church, hope you've made Christmas, and so forth and so on. You put the important things first. And John put walking in the truth. Right up front. And he calls us to that. And he calls us to not do it in a rote manner, but to do it with hearts full of Scripture and hearts that look to the Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us in ways that are not prideful and arrogant, but ways that are humble and filled with the gospel. This little letter teaches us that. It's 15, 15 verses we could stand to read quite often, I think, in our lives. But just to make sure that we understood and received another dose of that walking in the truth. May we all pray together now that this would be our heart and our motivation motivation every day for the rest of our lives. So let's pray. Father, as we come before you now, we do pray that. We pray that you would give us the strength, that you would give us the ability by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would give us the calling which you have in your word to walk in the truth. That you would make us people that walk in that truth in such a way that others see you and not us. We ask, Father, that we would be clothed in you and that clothing would be seen every step we take. And so, Father, we ask that you would give us the, uh, the ability to walk in the truth, to show you daily, and to not become or even hint, hint to be like, uh, 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 like petty diatrophies. No diatrophies here, Father. And uh, help us to keep it that way. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us, that Christ would lead us, that the Word would give us succor uh, as we go forth today and for the rest of the days this week, indeed for the rest of the days of time. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.